Greetings, ladies and mantagens, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Hunter Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. This particular story is called I Forged in War, written by Terran on Air. Mark 0608, Taffy Puller. That was my actual name. My name is Taffy Puller, or that is what I do, and that is what I love to do. My brothers and I were built for war. We were soldiers with flesh made from steel and wood. The only difference between us was the small sigil placed upon our foreheads. We were perfect in our way. We were built for perfection. We were built for war. Learning military techniques was easy enough. Holding blades and learning the strengths and weaknesses of defensive fortifications was simple to our calculating minds. We had no fear of death or pain, because we could neither die nor be made to hurt. That was when our human commanders realized a fatal flaw in us. We could not fear, and we could not want. We didn't know how, and we didn't know why. We had seen brothers die on the battlefield and thought nothing of it. They simply ceased to function in the midst of combat. After a few victories and the loss of several of my kind, our human captain, George Calhoun, brought us all together and told us what happens when one of us dies. Nothing. There is nothing there. There is nothing for soldiers with steel and flesh and wooden sinew. All that would await us was a dark, inky blackness that consumes all that would be seen. There was no wood. There was no steel. There was nothing to see or hear. We would never see our brothers again. We knew nothing of fear before that moment, because there was nothing for us to be afraid of. George planted the seed of fear within us. From that point on, we were more careful. We were cautious. We didn't want to die. We didn't want to lose brothers. We didn't want to be nothing. Through fear, we lived. Fear kept us alive. For the gift of fear, I thank George deeply. For without fear, I would likely not be alive today, nor many of my brothers. That wasn't the only gift George gave us, though. He was our captain and a brilliant tactician with an inquisitive mind. He wasn't like the magic users, but that didn't make him unintelligent. He wanted to know what were we. Clearly, we were metal brought to life with magic, no? No. He wanted to know what was inside of us. We couldn't eat, but did we want to? We didn't sleep, but was it something we would like to try? These were curious questions. I never asked myself these things before. It was like I didn't have the words to even know. Then he just gave them to me. In asking us about what we wanted out of life and what we might do after the war, he told us about his own plans. He was going to open a candy shop. Calhoun's Confectionaries, he called it. He told us of a building that he was going to buy back in his hometown. He was going to fill it with lights and machines and candy. We didn't know what candy was. Was it like knives or oil? Did you use it to burn enemies or bring light to the darkness? No, he told us. Humans would use it for repairs, not physical ones, but the damage one takes to the soul. That was a newer concept still. Soul. What was that? Is candy really so attached to the human soul? He told us about it time and time again. He was going to be a businessman, and he was going to sell his candies to all the small humans and all the big humans. He brought a smile to his face. Happiness. I never smiled before. I didn't know what it meant to be happy. 
I told him what I wanted to do after our long campaign. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to make candy. When the war was over, when the battles had been won and we were no longer had to pick up the blade, three of us went to work for George Calhoun. He told us that if we were going to work for him, then we were going to need names. Names. We never had names before. We looked at the jobs that we would be doing. We looked at what was expected of us. Then we came to him the next day with names. My brothers chose the names Candy Spinner for the making of cotton candy and Pastry Baker for the making of cookies and cakes and things. When my turn came around, I told him my name was Taffy Puller. I would be pulling the taffy. The shop wasn't small, but it wasn't large either. In the window, I could perform my duties. The hands that once had killed were now given purpose, and people came up to the glass to see me pull my taffy. They were transfixed by the metal man making their sweets for them. Many came in to see the metal man of Calhoun's confectionaries, and they smiled. The little humans smiled. The big humans smiled. They bought candy. Our candy. I couldn't smile, but I can make them smile. So many of them came to see us. So many of them ate our sweets. They were happy. I was happy. But those days of happiness couldn't last forever. Late one night, at closing time, I found George in his office, clutching his head. His normally well-greased hair was frayed and disheveled as he hunched over the papers on his desk. George, I said, putting my hand on his shoulder. It's time to go home. He looked up with pain in his eyes. He said, Taffy, what am I going to do about these bills between this and those men that keep harassing us for money? He was shaking. It wasn't fear. It was anger. I knew because I felt it too. I just wanted them to leave us alone. We all just wanted to make candy. We just wanted to make our money, making people smile in peace. What was so wrong with that? These things will still be here tomorrow, as will I. We can deal with it then, after you've gotten some sleep. I said to my old friend with all the earnesty I could muster. His health wasn't doing well. The stress was getting to him. We'll tackle this together, the same as we always have. Now uh, go home and go to bed. It was like that for a few months. There were days when we would make people smile and George would put on a show to keep the customers happy. There were nights where I would find him asleep at his desk with an empty bottle next to him or a glass of half-melted ice. I hated seeing him like that. Then one day, it was done. He came in one morning, chipper than ever. He had a spring in his step and more energy than I'd seen him have in over a year. We asked him what was going on and he responded, Don't worry, lads. All our money problems are over. It was good news to hear. We weren't sure what was going on, but if the boss said that everything was better, then things must have been better. He put down the bottle. There was no more drinking from him. Then we found out what happened. He took up a partner. She was an old woman who loved baking and owned a few stalls of her own. She came in one day with a card of supplies that she was going to bring into the store. It was an expansion, she called it. There were baking trays that floated through the air. Land took care of the baking. There were sticks and spun themselves up in cotton candy, so we didn't have to worry about that. Then she brought in dolls that she put in the window to pull taffy. In the end, there was so little for us to worry about. There was so little for us to do. It was nice, though, to see George back to his old self. At least, 
when we saw him. With so little to do and so little to worry about, we left much of the work to the old woman's things and put ourselves in storage, waiting for when George might call on us again. It was dark, but it didn't bother us much. We were used to staying up throughout the entire night, with little to do from our time in the military, keeping watch. One night, though, the door was left cracked. There was arguing. It wasn't a simple disagreement. There was the sound of a scuffle. Chairs got knocked over. There was a crash. I rushed outside to see what was going on. Before I ever opened the door all the way, I could hear laughter. I could see fire and smoke. I burst through the jaw. George was there, bleeding on the ground with a shelf dropped in him. I could see the tail of the old woman's dress scurrying out the door. The fires from our ovens were burning in an impossible, unstoppable kind of way. I tried to help him, but he screamed, No! Stop her! She has the children! Save the children! I looked to the fire. I looked to my collapsed friend. Then I nodded and ran after her. I ran through the back kitchen. There were pots. There were pots of meat. We didn't cook meat. There were cookies on a tray. Some of them had teeth baked into them. I ran. I ran, fearing the worst. What had she been doing in our store? My legs carried me to where we stored our flour and sugar. She wasn't there. In her place was a small human. Her mouth was gagged and her hands were tied. I picked her up. I looked back, but smoke and light were filling the room. I carried her past the shelves, full of things for candies and confectionaries, until we got to the same door the old woman must have escaped through. It led to the back alley and threw my own heavy metal body at it until it splintered and broke under me. Rain. There was water in the streets. I couldn't see that woman. I just saw dark clouds and the light of a flame climbing higher and higher. I undid the girl's bindings and brought her to the main street, where people were standing in front of our burning store. My brothers were there, their wooden parts singed and cracked. In front of them lay a body. It was charred and warped. It was breathing in an agonizing way. He looked at me with one reddened eye. I leaned down to hear what it was saying to me. The girl? He asked. She's alive, I told my friend. Good, he said. I'm so happy. That was the last time I heard the voice of the great George Calhoun, a man that didn't deserve to die. He taught me to fear. He taught me happiness. He taught me what it meant to be human. What it meant to have a soul. I do have a soul. I have a burning, human-shaped soul. It hungers. It wants to live. It wants to make people happy. It wants to kill witches. End of story. Surrender at Six Rocks by Coyote Havoc. If NASA had the same budget as the United States military, the flash of light near Jupiter would have been immediately noticed. That not being the case, the sleek Vrel Corvette entering the solar system went unnoticed for the most part. There was no powerful, majestic human vessels to oppose this intrusion. No interstellar traffic to inform anyone of the small warship that had just exited the hyperlane. This mission would be unopposed by humanity or any other sentient race, just as intended. Cal sat in the command chair looking at the local star for a few moments, soaking up the excitement of his crew as they closed on the blue-green planet that was their target. Such a primitive world, where violent conflict between different planetary factions was considered normal. Cal placed his hand on the box resting on the left arm of his command chair. Inside lay the sole reason for the secret mission. 
Take us in, pilot, Cal said. He could feel the joy and anticipation build in his crew through the telepathic link and all Ralph shared. He drank in enthusiasm at what was to come. His eyes shone bright as the planet called Earth took up an entire bridge window. Nobody would stop him or his crew from the sweetest of victories. A light snow covered the field in back of Six Rocks Bar and Grill. The storm had hampered the amount of guests, but cleared just in time for the chef Michael to watch the star flash into existence, then disappear as if it had never been. Chef Mike took another drag of his cigarette while enjoying what little heat escaped the gas grill to fight off the cold autumn wind. He knew that the coming battle was lost and considered if he had aptly prepared for his surrender. He mentally prepared for the loss while extinguishing his cigarette and prepared the capitulation that was inevitable. It only took 30 minutes for the elegant and deadly corvette to land in the field and Chef Mike watched as the Vral disembarked. Their dreadful camel spider appearance was even more terrifying by their militaristic bearing. They marched in perfect formation in their most terrifying stances. Every one of them advanced in his position, all of them with six legs on the ground moving as one, and four supporting weapons held a close approximation to the low ready. Their commander just let out a shrill screech, and the column halted just outside the pandio. I am victorious, human! Cal said as he placed the box on the patio railing. Chief Michael walked over to the container and opened it. Inside were around 1,000 triangular metallic tokens. Selecting one random, he held it in the palm of his hand and he watched it as it opened of its own accord to reveal a detailed description of Earth with the words Six Rocks Bar and Grawl in parentheses. Beyond that were lines indicating hyperspace lanes that connected Earth to various points. Bernard, Star, Denver, Gabilex, even Ral Primus. Chef Mike allowed the map to close again and placed it in the box. He looked into Cal's eight eyes and then lowered his head in submission. You are the victor, almighty Cal of the Vral. The spoils await your crew, Chef Michael said humbly. I demand the bar, Cal roared. I'm not the owner, Cal. I told you that already, Chef Michael retorted. The bar was not part of the agreement. Cal was taken aback, afraid that he had lost face in front of his crew. The telepathic link confirmed that he had not, just the desire for their spoils. Reassured, Cal looked back down at the human and physically relaxed his posture. My sincerest apologies, he spoke quietly. It happens all the time, Chief Mike said. Has agreed cheeseburgers for your entire crew and three bottles of the green stuff. My treat. A roar of the crew echoed in the still and cold night air, and the military-style column devolved into a mob as if Sergeant Major had said zonk at the American military physical training formation, the ten-legged creatures each rushing into the bar to find a freshly prepared cheeseburger awaiting them, and the three bottles of green alcohol placed right in front of the bartender. This was the apex of victories for the Raoul survey crew. A free meal and a delightful green beverage called Absinthe. Cal took a burger, still warm from the grill, and began to tear into it, savoring the flavors of beef and this human concoction called American cheese, melted directly on top. The crisp vegetable that called lettuce with a thinly sliced fruit called tomato, and the spicy bulb vegetable called onion, even the salty and sharp things called pickles heightened the sensation and further whetted the appetite, while satiating the longing that they had all felt while charting this map 
Chef Mike had requested. The green absinthe alcohol introduced a further clarity to the telepathic link while fogging their individual minds in a delightful way. In mere moments, every member of Cal's survey crew were in sheer bliss. Their meal finished, they reveled in the completion of the most unauthorized mission. Chef Michael walked through a door with a broom and a dustpan while the bartender finished preparing a large bucket on wheels with a hot water and a cleaning agent. Sorry about the mess, Cal said with a bit of a remorse for the bits of food that he and his crew had left on the floor in their ravenous craze. Happens all the time, the bartender said, shrugging it off. More of the absinthe was ordered by the crew as Chief Michael closed down the kitchen and began to wash the dishes. Cal thought back to the time he and his crew had discovered this planet by sheer accident, landing at this little establishment to begin their survey and scared the living shit out of everyone at their bar. He washed himself in the memory of Chief Michael with his stoic face and defiant stance addressing him as an equal, but a trepidation leaking with every word as he said, Are you going to order something or not? I close in 20 minutes. Chef Mike, even with his paltry display of bravado, earned Cal's respect for standing up to his obviously fearsome visage, and Cal respectfully asked, But is this a cheeseburger? He chuckled to himself as Chef Michael walked out of the kitchen, his cleaning and shutdown complete. Care to join me? Cal asked the chef. Chef Michael and Carl leaned against the patio railing, where the box had been set earlier, enjoying their libations. When we first landed here, I thought there was going to be a fight, Carl opined. Happens all the time, Chef Michael responded before lighting a cigarette and taking a deep pull from it. It's a bar after all. I'm just glad that we could come to an arrangement instead. Another band of clouds blocked the stars and the light snow began to fall. The cold wind whipped a single tree next to the warship. Lights appeared above the clouds and a smaller angular freighter engaged the landing sequence alongside Cal's ship. Food, drink, or lost? Cal asked. Lost, Chief Michael guessed. The new arrival slithered its way out of their ship and slowly approached the patio, caution and fear reflecting in its eyes as it watched for any sign of aggression movement from Cal. Oh, great Val warrior, please forgive my intrusion. Cal chuckled and Chief Michael said, pay up. Cal produced a small lozenge of gold and handed it over to Chef Michael, to the newly arrived Turk. Welcome to Six Rocks Bar and Grill, Chef Michael said warmly. Took a wrong turn at Bernard Star. The Turk lowered its eye stalks meekly in response. Cal laughed while responding. Happens all the time. End of story. Story number two. Worth a thousand words written by Echoing Cascade. The Silos surprise attack on the colony had gone perfectly until now. Repeat that again, but make it make sense. General Maroc was not amused. His plan had taken months to prepare, and when it was finally time to take his prize, the human colony of Alpha Zeta IV. The advancement of his troops was halted by what seems to be no more than a handful of human soldiers executing hit and run attacks. The courier that had come with the letter of negotiations from the human was shaking in his boots, quite literally in fact. One would probably get friction burns from trying to hug him. The human brought a drawing with what looks like a, a silos uh, having relations with a cactus plant. 
General Moroc sighed. Stupid ass shaved monkeys. Execute the human and prepare to move out. The courier, still very much frightened, managed to find his voice. What? What do I tell the other marines? Tell them nothing. Simply throw them the head of the, uh... Did you say marines? The courier looked confused as he nodded. He barely noticed some of the officers in the room groaning. The general then pinched the bridge of his nose and extended a hand and gave me that drawing. He looked at the colorful and anatomically improbable picture and sagged in his feet. On oh, second thought, uh, let him go and tell him that we are leaving. The courier bowed low and left at a run. As soon as he was out of the room, the assembled Silas started packing their things. One of the general's youngest lieutenants couldn't hold his tongue anymore and spoke up. Why should we run? They have nothing left. We destroyed their weapons, caches, their food supplies. They have little place to hide. It's only a matter of time. The general didn't look up from his suitcase as he answered. Time is what we don't have. They'll hold us off until reinforcements arrive. How? The scream from the young officer halted all activity. The general put out a sad smile and walked towards the man. Because while they might be out of ammo, food and shelter, he then handed them the drawing before continuing. <sighs> they still have plenty of crayons. End of story. Off the menu, written by Coyote Havoc. Chef Michael leaned on the patio railing, looking at the truck stacked up like a row of logs waiting to be cut. He took another long drag from his cigarette and field stripped his cherry from the butt before throwing it away. Looking out over the empty field, he wondered how his other customers were doing. Nada! How many does that make now? Chef Michael thought to himself as he turned to open the door. Thirty-five! As Chef Michael entered the kitchen, a new star flashed into existence and immediately disappeared. The newly lost guest adeptly steered the small vessel to the open field near the designation point on their navigation. A small, white furry face stuck out of the door and looked around. The darkness was not a problem for their eyes, but the smell of hydrocarbons in the process of refinement prevented their nose from detecting danger. They would have to rely on sight and sound. Chef Michael had just finished prepping several plates for Philly sandwiches, buns cut and ready to be toasted. He turned to grab a rib roast only to look straight into the eyes of a giant rabbit looking right back at him in shock and horror just beyond the kitchen door. The moment seemed to stretch on as neither moved, both blinked in unison, confirming that the other existed, and Chef Michael slowly raised a hand and began to walk to the door. I'm friendly. Do you understand me? Chef Michael began to say slowly. The cute pink nose twitched once, then twice, before letting out a scream that should have woken the dead. Clearing out the ringing in his ears, Chef Michael tried to calm the new arrival, to no avail. The bartender appeared behind him at the same time as several truck drivers exploded onto the patio in search of the noise. Ganada Tifniopadhapo, the creature screamed, looking at all the faces surrounding it. Am I really that drunk? The trucker said back. Annoyed, Chef Michael shot the drivers a withering look and took a breath before turning his attention back to the rabbit, whose heart seemed to be trying to beat its way through the poor thing's chest. There, caught in the fluff, was what Chef Michael assumed was a small translator that had fallen from its long ears. He retrieved the translator he'd been given years ago and placed it in his left ear, and indicated to the one the rabbit had lost, presumably while screaming. 
Seeing as nobody made a move toward, the rabbit carefully and cautiously grabbed the device and inserted it in their ear. Can you understand me now? Chef Michael asked. Yes. Uh, are you going to eat me? The rabbit inquired back. No, we don't eat sentient here, Chef Michael said, turning towards the drivers and motioning them back to their beers. My name is Michael. Mike, if you prefer, Chef Michael said calmly. And you? Getrit, the rabbit replied. Better than Harvey, Chef Michael said flippantly. So, I am that drunk, the trucker said before heading back in the door. Getrit took a while to calm down, but was soon occupying a seat at the bar. Her nose still twitching, and her head following every movement a customer made, especially the guy who kept calling her Harvey. Chef Michael finished the sandwiches, and she almost had another fit as he delivered them to the customers and ordered. Relax, Chef Michael said in a soothing voice. Humans are omnivorous, but we don't eat sentience, he reminded her. After delivering the plate, Chef Michael returned to Kendrick and asked, What's the cute fuzzy thing like you doing in a place like this? I was on my way too, Kedrit began. Denver, Chef Michael finished. Happens all the time. Where are you from, if I may ask? Getrit thought about it for a moment and then said, I'm a road ten and I came from Vuk, the third colony of our people. You? Chef Michael made a half frown. As I said before, we are human and you're kind of on our only planet. Shock coughed through Getrit. You're uncontacted? How? About two years ago, a few days after I started working here, we had our first uh, visitor. Their name was Goof, and they were a cabaxi on their way to Denver. At the same time, we had a greyhound bus, a type of ground-based transport, break down with the church of hungry cosplayers on it. Everyone assumed that it was a costume until they tried to order. That's when crap got uh, interesting, and Gulf handed me a translator so we could communicate. Earth remains uncontacted because we have yet to achieve a reason for most sapient species to know us. But at least twice a week we have a visitor like you. Some are regulars now, and as long as we convince the drivers and motorists not to say anything, we just keep going like this. Chef Michael explained, then asked, Hungry? Gedron looked at the menu. It's all meat though, not everything, Chef Michael said, and disappeared back in the kitchen. A few minutes later, Chef Michael returned with a glass dish with something that smelled wonderful. Hey, question first, if you don't mind, Chef Michael began. Can your species eat alkaloid plants? Getrid nodded affirmation, and Chef Michael set the glass dish down in front of her. Inside was the most colorful arrangement of vegetables in the light red sauce. Getrid prodded the purple, yellow, and brown slices before picking them up with her fingers. The sauce was rich in light notes of sweetness and flavors that she had never experienced before. The vegetables were soft but firm, with just a hint of something that tastes like flowers. She savored every bite, until there was only a few drops left of the sauce in the dish. I take it you liked it, Chef Michael asked. Do you have more? Getrid requested. At home, Chef Michael replied. We call it ratatouille. It's a dish from France, a nation here on Earth. This one is my own recipe. You brought this here? Gedrit asked with a pang of guilt. I was going to be my dinner, but I'm glad that you so thoroughly enjoyed it, Chef Michael said. Let's see it to getting you back on the road, shall we? An hour later, elbow deep in dishwater, Chef Michael replayed the events of the evening. Gedrit seemed overjoyed to receive a map that indicated her destination, Earth, and where she had chosen the incorrect hyperlane. 
she was a little crestfallen when he asked her to keep Earth as a little secret and had promised to return for another serving of Ratatouille. Just another satisfied guest from a very far away. Gedrit, lining up with the hyperlane that would lead her to Denfar, thought back on how kind the humans were. Michael, giving her the dinner that he had prepared for himself, made her giggle a little. It wasn't like he would know that such a display was an overture of marriage in her species' customs, but she entertained the idea just a little. What would it be like to be mated to a human? She remembered the flavor and texture of the meal and decided to return when her business was finished. What harm could it do to ask? End of story. Story number two. A trip to the museum written by Echoing Cascade. Ambassador Simon Silver was meeting with his Emirac counterpart, Vol 533. During the last two months since first contact was established, both representatives had been very guarded with their cultural and political situation and their species. They were models of professionalism, paragons of their race, men amongst men. Their security details, on the other hand, Yo, 22, what's up? Sup, Bob? Nothing much. The ambassadors looked at their head of security and then at each other and sighed. Simon spoke up. All right, I'll be touring the museum with Ambassador 4533. Just cover the entries since only the two of us will be looking at the exhibits. Bob gave him a thumbs up as he sat down on the ground and started shuffling a deck of cards while 22 sat in front of him. I swear to God, if that man couldn't shoot a fly a mile away with his eyes closed, I would fire him on the spot. Simon followed 4533 into the building, a building that read Museum of Galactic Walls. Oh good, High Command was wondering about how the galactic community fought. This should prove educational. Here we have a statue commemorating the end of the silas Alturian War. The bloodiest, longest war in recorded history, having claimed nearly a million lives and lasted almost a full standard year. The tiny grey Imarak floated up to Simon's head and hugged it to reassure him. I understand if it is too much, but the galactic community feels humanity should know your darkness. Yes, of course, I understand. He fought to keep his cool as he remembered the corporation's walls that saw 2.7 billion dead and the Hundred Year War. They kept moving. Here we have the monument to the unknown soldier. Feeling he was on more familiar ground, Simon took a deep breath and started to calm himself. He is the only soldier to have fallen in a war that could not be identified in known history. This is because he was hit by an illegal weapon. The Iron Mac was hugging the human's head again to comfort him. Illegal weapon? Yes, a weapon that does not kill instantly, leaving the body intact. With a great effort, Simon did not move his hand to the plasma pistol on his hip. Right, yes, uh, illegal weapons. The Imarak stops hugging him long enough to grab his head and look him in the eyes. <sighs> the next part of the museum may be, uh... Uh, difficult to understand, but most species do not have the words for crimes documented here. Simon looked at the names on the table of contents of a fly he grabbed on the way in, and words on it in each translator had no problem identifying. Torture, genocide, civil war, standing armies, nuclear-powered weapons. Simon closed his eyes and prayed to all that was sacred and profaned to wake up back home with this whole affair being a bad dream. 
Bob, Simon's head of security, picked the card. So, how did you get your boss to play along? Are you kidding? When I explained to 4533 that humans had similar sense of humor to us, he jumped at the idea. Took him two whole days of training to be able to comment on the exhibits without laughing himself silly. When do you think he'll break and ask to leave? My bet is on the unknown soldier, but... 22 folded his hands and Bob picked his winnings and shuffled the deck. That soon. I think the Who Humans video is going to be what does it. Bob looked at his hand and frowned. Who Humans? Bipedal ape-like creatures. They are the only known species to have gone to war with each other since the Galactic Council reluctantly cut all ties with them and are isolated to this day from all other sentient species. Bob snorted. Okay, yeah, I can see how they might do it. Before he could pick up his next card, Ambassador Simon burst out through the front door. He was holding his plasma pistol. We need to leave. We have it to alert the High Council. We'll be branded criminals, pariahs. 22 sat up and noticed his boss was nowhere to be seen. Uh, where is Ambassador 4533? In response, Simon shot him, or at least tried. His arm was all over the place. 22, on the other hand, didn't miss his mark. I'm sorry, but he left me no choice. Bob moved to check on his boss and friend. He was breathing in short, shallow breaths, and he was struggling to speak. Bob had never felt so much remorse in his life. Here he held the dying body of one of the greatest men he'd ever known for all of a stupid joke. It should have been him. As Simon lay dying, he tried to say his last words, and Bob leaned in to hear the barely audible whisper. Gotcha, motherfucker. Bob looked at Simon again, breathing normally and with a shit-eating grin on his face. Then at 22 and Ambassador 4533, who is now standing by his side, both holding in their laughter. I hope you all know you're going to hell for that one. Oh, cry me a fracking river. Fake museum of war? Now help me up. The ground is cold as ice and I need a drink. General Armstrong was worried. Simon Silver should have sent his report on today's meeting with his Imarak delegation hours ago. He didn't like doing this, but he remotely activated the human space embassy's camera. The position humanity would hold, if any, in the universe was a source of strong debate on Earth and in colonies, and this meeting was crucial. He expected many things, but seeing Simon and his people drinking, playing cards, and eating junk food with the tiny grey aliens was not one of them. Many notions floated up in his head, court-martial, political disaster, total failure, etc. But the more he looked at the scene of merriment, the more a single thought dominated all others. Ah, uh, I think we'll be okay. End of story. Humans are priests and doctors. They don't belong on the battlefield. Written by DWL52-2. When we sent out that call for aid, we were at our most desperate hour. The alien horde was crashing the far edge of the valley and headed directly for the city. All our hope seemed to die, just as we were about to. I watched from one of our many elevated guard towers as the monsters slammed into the city's outer walls, hundreds of bodies crashing into each other, killing their own below their own feet, just for the chance to be the first to land a killing blow on us. I watched in horror as their dying below slowly built up a ramp for them to climb up and over the outer walls. Upon seeing this, the guard to my right promptly placed the barrel of his gun in his mouth and pulled the trigger before I could order him to stop. Deep down, I couldn't blame him. We all had seen the horror that these beasts left behind them. 
saw the recovered video logs and watched as they literally tore their prey apart or spit acid on them that caused their victims to melt into a puddle. Nobody should have to die like that. As I watched the beasts climb over the walls and start moving into the city below me, I too prepared to join my fellow subordinates in death. As the commanding prefect, it's considered dishonorable to die by suicide while facing an enemy. At least, it is with every enemy except the Horde. Against them, we have orders to not be taken alive and suicide is expected. I placed the barrel of my gun to the side of my head, prepared to do my duty, when I heard a crackle on my radio breaking through the static. I lower my gun in disbelief. As help arrived. The words came through my radio on the open channels, all garbled and non-intelligent, before the translators kicked in. Thorin Legion, this is Captain McAllister of the Terran Union's ship Afterlife Forever Decision. We will be making groundfall in a few minutes. Please hold fast. Are you kidding me? The soldier to my left yells. We are about to be overrun by the Horde, and our only hope is from the race of medics and preachers. I thought all hope died when I saw the beasts climbing over the wall. I was wrong, hearing that our only help was coming from those cowards who just preach about peace. Well, that officially killed it with a noted twinge of embarrassment that our own people retreated while they came to help. I picked up the radio and responded to the human captain. Captain McAllister, this is Prefect Rattown. We appreciate your response to our call for aid. However, it comes too late. Please stay in orbit. There is no point in all of us dying. Please record the Horde's movements and transmit the data to Galactic Council. Hopefully, they can learn from our defeat. My request goes unanswered. From my elevated position, I was able to see the human ship break through the atmosphere and hover far above the city. From its sides, two large white bird-like transports detach and glide to the ground. Even from there, I can see the red plus sign of the humans used to distinguish medical transports, painted on the sides and wings of the white bird. I didn't even see the smaller blackbirds flying alongside them until they broke off and raced ahead of the bigger ones. Thankfully, they seemed to be heading to the space fort, right where we had rounded up the civilians of the city. Perhaps there was a chance to save a few. They disappear behind the distant buildings, and I hope that these preachers can bring my people with them when they leave. Before I could return my attention to the horde again, those blackbirds emerged from behind the buildings and crossed the distance to my command tower in only a few heartbeats. It didn't dawn on me just how big these blackbirds were until one of them was landing on the edge of my tower. The thing was five times the size of a standard squad transport. The clawed feet pierced the floor plates and squeezed them as a metal blackbird sits down, lowering its belly to the floor. A panel below its head opens and swings down, revealing a ramp and door large enough for three grown grass grazers to walk in side by side. If these small ones were this big, how large were those white ones? From the belly of the bird, three humans in black clothing come walking out with a brisk pace. As they got closer, I noticed that the clothing is in fact an armor of some kind, and each has a patch stenciled onto their right shoulder pauldron. In a white paint, it is the image of an animal with a long muzzle and a pointed ears. Their head sits on a bipedal body with two arms. In one hand is a human skull, and in the other is a piece of farming equipment. Following quickly behind these three was a female Klaxion, a translator. 
the soldier trio and the translator jog over to me in the middle of one's salute to me before speaking. Back wolf ik baru spark clicks. It's barking words, not translating. That must be the reason for the klaxian. Greetings, prefect, she says. I'm translator Kiwe. I'll be translating for the humans. This is Warrant Officer Phillips. He is here to reinforce you. Reinforce? Reinforce? No! You, you need to retreat. Get out of here. The hordes have already climbed the walls. The translator Kiwe does a job, and the three humans start barking, their mouths hanging open and baring their teeth. The two on either side stop the noise, but the middle one keeps going, making a long sighing sound as a box. Philip says, retreat? How? We just got here. Some more barking. We will be deploying along your towers here and start the pushback. If you have anyone at the ground level, I suggest you order them to start climbing. What? What? I asked. Surely there is no way these humans are going to fight the horde. Oh, how wrong I was. Turns out the humans have recently made a war pact with the Cerulians, as well as the Gonk. Both are a warlike tribe. The Cerulians specialize in mechanical warfare, while the Gonk are beasts of immense size, muscle, and ferocity. Using the Gonk's build, the Cerulean's mechs, and the human's tactics, the horde took a beating, or the likes of which made me almost feel sorry for them. <laughs> almost. The retaliation assault started when the blackbirds flew low to the ground and released a red liquid into the city. It had quickly evaporated into clouds of gas. Noxium, they called it. The horde who had gotten into the city simply melted into thick purple puddles of fluid. Their screams, loud enough to cause the horde outside to pause their assault. That was the first turning point. The second was when these same blackbirds then flew over the exterior of the city and released the small discs that spun and flew at the horde. They buried themselves into the beasts like saw blades before they exploded and coated the entire area in flames. Even from so far away, I swear I could feel the heat. The blackbirds then flew over to the other guard towers, opening their bellies and dropping gonk troopers down onto them. These were not the normal eight-feet-tall gonks, though. No, these were the twelve-foot-tall gonks in power armor and equipped with chemical rockets and massive multi-projectile launchers. These projectile launchers started spinning up around the main barrel of the weapon and, as we watched, began to spit out metal pellets at the horde at such an incredible speed that they actually seemed to cut the horde members in half. Alongside these gonks, regular humans deployed in similar style armor and weapons, dealing out just as much, if not more, brutality than the gonks. My men and I watched as within minutes we were replaced as the sole fighters in this campaign. Sure, my men had laser rifles and were dealing out as much damage as they could. They had been trained for accuracy and making each shot count. These humans, though, they seemed to adapt to the spray-and-pray method of dealing with the horde's larger numbers. Pray, it would make sense, since these deity worshippers were praying to their gods that their attacks would work. The scary part is, it was working. We watched as wave upon wave of the hordes was cut down, burned and melted, cut in half and trampled upon. It wasn't until the human barked again that I realized I'd been staring at the destruction with my mouth hanging open. Kiwi had said something, but I was too taken aback to catch what she said. Uh, my, my apologies. Uh, uh, can, can you repeat that? He said, we should probably start pulling back to the spaceport. Why? I managed to squeak out. The ships are about to launch an orbital strike. We don't want to be here when it hits. 
Whoever it was that said that humans do not belong on a battlefield, they were correct. These humans didn't belong on the battlefield. It belonged to them. It wasn't until much later, after the civilians and my soldiers were loaded up on their transports and on our way back to their ship, that it even occurred to me to ask. It is said that humans are priests and medics, but you came in and not only fought back against the horde, but held them all for us to leave. Have we gotten your species wrong? Yes and no, Kiwa says before translating to Warrant Officer Phillips. She gets a response, and as she translates, the orbital strike hits, illuminating his eyes and drowning me in fear as I see the truth in them. No, Prefect, you are not wrong. We mainly are medics and priests. However, the god we serve is the god of death, and our prayers come in the form dead enemies. Once I learned their alphabet, I learned our translated devices got their initial message wrong. The name of the ship was not Afterlife Forever's decision. It was Hal's eternal judgment. And it was a host of the Grim Reaper Special Forces. End of story. Our Sun, written by its director. There was once a time in which our ships outnumbered the stars of the galaxy. Our weapons could cause untold devastation. Untold, because no one they fired at survived. The buildings on our worlds clawed their way towards the vacuum space, and in some cases actually reached it. Every spacefaring race we encountered bowed to our wounds or simply eradicated from existence. Life was gone. Those who were loyal to our empire went to sleep with the dietary needs met, and were assured they would waken feeling refreshed thanks to our medicines. Our at-home entertainment consisted of most advanced technologies to ever grace the stars Every desire and worm we had was fulfilled by those we had conquered. We grew fat and lazy in our dens of luxury, but we shared these traits whenever war was necessary. Wars, though, didn't usually last very long. Every now and again, some type of social revolutionary would rear its ugly head, only to have it removed before it finished its pretty little speech. The longest and hardest wars we fought were slave rebellions, but that's mostly because they were willing to lose what little they had for the scent of hope of getting more. This we understood. Gambling is a fine way to pass the time. Such was our way of life for centuries. Then things changed. Not everyone is cut out for a life of luxury. Some prefer to hunt for things, and society is ill-suited to provide amusement for such people. They would instead turn towards the stars, searching for new planets to discover and explore. They believed that this would advance us, make us stronger. For a time, they were right. Most of the discoveries were nearly worthless, but on occasion they would discover something interesting. A configuration of molecules that we hadn't seen before, a new species to conquer, and planets that could be turned into pleasure retreats for the wealthy. Even super caches of resources that further secured our dominance over the stars. Then, on the other side of the galaxy, they discovered the end of our empire. Though we didn't know it at the time. How could we? The little creatures with two legs and arms and no natural weaponry were a far cry from the nightmare-inducing beasts that we eradicated in the past. The Tlin with their acidic sprays, or the Clavin with their razor-sharp teeth and claws were much, much more intimidating foes. At first, we captured some of them far from what we now know as their home system. 
We had believed that we did so in stealth, but we was unfamiliar with their forms of communication. Said communications were very rudimentary for a spacefaring race. We began interrogating them fervently, trying to learn everything we could about their colonies, culture, and military. We discovered that the ship we had captured was itself a colony, one that had been launched into the void hundreds of years prior. One had started as a colonization effort had over time evolved into a scientific experiment to determine the physiological and psychological impact of deep space travel over the course of generations. We scoffed at this. Their technology wasn't particularly advanced, but it was different, unique in a lot of ways. We learned a lot, but not about anything important. Perhaps if they had been able to tell us more about their species, we might have blacked off, attempted to make amends for what we'd done. No, probably not. Doing so would have demonstrated weakness to those who would have our necks. Our fate was likely sealed the moment the species was discovered. We learned that they had sent a communication back to their people when their communications device received a response. The communications was very basic, and it had taken a long time for the message to pass. Despite the rudimentary nature of the communication, we were able to translate the incoming message. Sit tight, we're on our way. It was mere moments after we translated the message that the first ships arrived. These ships were far better equipped for warfare than the ones we'd captured, but they didn't immediately fire upon us. Instead, they sent a message demanding the return of their ship and its crew. This was impossible, though. Once we determined that the interrogation had run its course, we vivisected the crew to learn more about their physiology. Naturally, they didn't survive the process. The ship itself had been scrapped. We could give them nothing other than what came naturally to us. War. That first fight was the most intense we had seen to date. We lost many ships and people, but so did they. Both sides fell back, resulting in a draw. We then prepared for the coming battles with glee. Both sides sent scouts, and we skirmished several times. Like in many wars prior, we captured several of their soldiers. Unlike other wars, they captured several of ours. We were introduced to the concept of a prisoner exchange. Were it not for the members of our nobility that had been captured, we would have laughed at the concept. But we gladly gave them back their people in exchange for our nobles. Battles were raged time and time again, and we were under the foolish impression that we were winning. However, their ships were much easier to build than ours. Our ships were beacons of perfection, blending warfare and luxury in the perfect balance. Their ships didn't have entertainment modules, full-service cafeterias, or anywhere near adequately sized sleeping quarters. We were evenly matched in our production capabilities. But because their ships were so sparse, they were able to build three ships in the time it took us to build one. We didn't notice this at first because we had such vast numerical advantage over them. Even as our fleets began to become evenly numbered though, our confidence didn't waver. This physiology suggested weakness when it came to ground combat. We believed that it to be a simple matter of time before we found their colonies and ended this war. But they found ours first. Their first attempts at the invasion of Plexopi was an embarrassment to both sides. We showed them our physical superiority, but winning cost many more casualties than we had expected. However, they returned with a better armor and weaponry, having learned from their mistakes in the previous attempt. The second invasion laid bare our weaknesses, shattered our confidence, and cost us a planet. Still, they allowed the civilians to evacuate. To us, 
This showed weakness and lack of resolve. It demonstrated to us that we could still be victorious. Every civilian can be a soldier, so our ranks would never thin if they weren't willing to eradicate them. As we pressed more and more civilians into service, this belief was reinforced. But we were wrong. Sparing our civilians instilled a sense of thankfulness within them. Our soldiers, previously more willing to give their lives to kill, were now hesitating to fire the killing shots. They began to surrender more often. In some cases, they refused to fight at all. They knew the enemy was merciful and would capture them instead of killing them. Why give their lives when they didn't have to? As the humans invaded more and more of our colonies, we found ourselves becoming more and more brutal with our policies. It wasn't long before our leadership began to be resented by our own people. Things came to a head when we were finally forced to execute a certain noble that had decided to surrender rather than fighting to the last. Our leaders called him sniffling, cowardly, and treacherous. Our people said that he was pragmatic, intelligent, and loyal to his soldiers. Mercy was demanded, but only humans are merciful. His execution marked the beginning of a revolution that we were not prepared to put down. One that was bolstered by our own slaves. We were at war in two fronts. Our empire fought viciously, but for every world we subdued, one was lost to the humans. By the time we ousted the traitors and restored peace amongst our people, the war was all but lost. We had fewer ships than the humans. Our soldiers were no longer able to receive supplies. Grand constructions after grand construction fell, until all that was left was our cradle system. All the while, the humans were offering us the chance to surrender, rubbing their superiority in our face, we thought. We should have accepted a peace, or at least a ceasefire, but instead we continued fighting. It's all we've ever known. They destroyed the last of our fleets and the shipyards that rebuilt them. They conquered the last of our worlds. Then they punished us. They called us a blight upon the galaxy, a race of slaving warmongers, our slaves, now free and living in harmony with the humans, called for our extermination or enslavement, blood for blood. The humans wouldn't heed such a call, though. Instead, they claimed to be merciful as they set about surrounding our star with unbelievably large metal beams. The mercy of the humans was nothing more than a twisted cruelty. They let our people live so that they would fight us. They had traded our soldiers back to us to save their own, and now... They were installing solar plants around our sun. They supplied us with hydroponics equipment and heat generators so that we could continue to live when the darkness finally fell. Their fleet stayed in our system to harvest the power and to ensure that we continued to live in the darkness that they claim we created. For our crimes, they caged our sun. End of story. What happened when the humans came, written by Squirrel Bay. It was known to be impossible to cross the great, dark expanse between the galaxies, but the humans did it anyway. They arrived in world ships, physics defying behemoths, the mass and size of planets, roaring onto our galactic shore at blistering speeds, bristling with disturbing weapons and impenetrable shields. Each ship was a technological wonder beyond anything anyone had deemed possible. Clearly, they were superior in technology and arms to any known species. Or would they be a threat or an opportunity? The first to find out were the Pecori, 
an empire of aggressive isolationists, scarred by centuries of war. They did not even consider greeting the humans peacefully when they entered the galaxy through their borders. Perhaps things may have gone differently if they had. Instead, they attacked on sight, and so the humans rolled through their fleet as those not even there. Thousands of ships were vaporized instantly. They didn't even slow down. The humans sent out a message. What happened to the Bakori was unfortunate, but they had been attacked. They came in peace and were here to save the galaxy. Submit peacefully, they pleaded, and you will come to no harm. In the name of the greater good, we will set you truly free. The galactic community at this time was a complex web of alliances, dominated by warring factions of ancient enemies. In an era of constant war and strife, in which slavery and genocide were common and struggle and sacrifice were mundane, none were open to trusting the humans, and so their pleas fell on deaf ears. The destruction of the Pecori had sent shockwaves across space as every empire scrambled to defend themselves, and the humans were greeted with hostility at every turn. To their credit, they showed restraint. They begged and pleaded with every empire to submit peacefully. But after a millennia of war, none could swallow their pride in the face of a fight. Soon, their reputation preceded them, and the word human became synonymous with death and destruction. Their titanic worldships had no choice but to descend upon the galaxy like a plague, seemingly impervious to all weapons. It did not take long for every major homeworld to have a human worldship looming in its orbit like a loaded gun. They promised that they were bringing salvation, security, progress, and plenty. But the reality was that within a year, every living being in the galaxy had been forced into servitude. Propaganda filled the comms, preaching about the greater good, Every being had a plot to play if they were to be saved, though from what the humans ever say. It was time of great change, technology so advanced as to seem a cult became commonplace. An intergalactic network was created, allowing for instantaneous transfers of information across impossible distances. A standard currency was introduced, and species were forced to coexist and cooperate with each other as they had never done before. Despite all of this, they were not benevolent masters. Productivity ruled above all. Beings grew old and died, working the same job they were assigned at adulthood. The wondrous technology was used only to strip mine planets for their resources and further the material gain of humans. The galaxy was converted into an advanced and convoluted chain of production in which every non-human was a tiny, insignificant cog. None knew their purpose in the machine. There was no choice, no freedom. They painted themselves as saviors, but after all, flowery speeches about shared destiny, unity, and a common good fell on deaf ears when you spent every hour working your fingers to the bone in a dark mine. They had a saying, an iron fist in a velvet glove, that described their attitude. They were not above treating their slaves with smiles and kind words, but if a planet didn't meet its quota, they would introduce production initiatives to improve things. The velvet was removed to reveal the iron, and teeth behind the smile grew pointed, and the kind words turned hard. If you treat beings as tools, it is inevitable that they will rise against you. It was very early on when the Alethi rebelled. They saw themselves as honorable warriors, and could not tolerate the idea of being trodden beneath the heels of humans, never mind the fact that they had been employing slaves for millennia. The humans dropped a single bomb on their homeworld, releasing a virus that tore through the population in days. They were decimated, 
and within a week the workers had been replaced with other species from off-world with barely a blip in production. In their announcement, the humans spoke of a great length about the greater good of the galaxy and shared responsibility to the future. You think us monsters, it said, but we are nothing compared to what we are trying to save you from. Most assumed that it was a falsehood, invented to lend plausibility to their heinous crimes. It was shamefully dishonorable, but effective in its messaging. The will of the galaxy was broken, and none rebelled after that. Pure than a hundred cycles passed like this, the downtrodden masses lived and died in servitude, until one day, the order was given to cease production. For the first time since their arrival, the galaxy once again ran to a halt. The day the humans had been preparing the galaxy for had finally come. Another extragalactic visitor had been detected, arriving from the same direction they had so long ago. It was far sooner than they'd expected, they said, with only a cycle left before their arrival. The screen changed, and the beings watching the announcement were united in collective horror. Ships, millions upon millions of them, some many hundreds of times the size of humanity's world ships, were barreling through space towards the galaxy, sinewy and grey, ridged with spikes and oozing ichor. They appeared shaped like living flesh. The humans referred to them as the Pursuers, a race of ravenous, mindless monsters, twisted and malformed, endlessly hungry. The greater good had been real all along. They'd been fighting them across the universe for millennia, trying in vain to eradicate them once and for all in a series of desperate last stands. They had arrived in the galaxy ahead of them to unite and guide the species there to victory. For the Pursuers' only goal was to consume until the complete and utter decimation of all life. In every previous galaxy that they had visited, telling the populace about the pursuers had caused such widespread panic that informing them only served to seal their fate, ruining their chances at survival. The galaxy's only hope was to bend to the humans' rule, to organize and prepare, entrench itself, and fight until the bitter end. Immediately after the announcement, the humans finally revealed what they had been producing with the century of slave labor. Towering humans in powered exoskeletons arrived on every planet with vast caches of weapons, armor, and vehicles. Entire populaces were transported off-world to be trained in space combat. Every being in the galaxy, old enough to fight, was to be trained, armed, and sent into battle against the enemy. The humans were not truly the dictators they had been believed to be. Their perceived lies about the greater good had all been genuine. They only regretted that they had not been honest about the pursuers sooner, to give them more time to prepare. The galaxy saw a different side of them then. What had previously been seen as aloofness revealed to be as quiet fortitude. The brutality of which they drove the workers was really determination. Everything they had done had come at the expense of the people. True, but it had genuinely been done for the greater good. The pursuers, when they arrived, were everything the humans had promised them to be. Mindless savages, intent only on destruction and consuming every living thing that they could find. There was no method to their madness, just sheer weight of numbers. In space, they would launch wave upon wave at the Allied fleets with no regards for themselves. The ships were impossibly fast and could somehow sense sentient beings. They would aim themselves at enemy spacecraft, ramming them at near light speed before sprouting limbs and tearing through the metal. The world ships and their supporting fleets, now crewed by former slaves, were in constant combat. Any defeat in space would allow the pursuer's ships to make planet fall. 
once they landed. Millions upon millions of drones would throw themselves tirelessly at any living creature they could find, ripping them to pieces and devouring them in moments. The fighting was brutal. Billions of lives were lost daily as a coalition of species led by the humans fought desperately for their survival. They were few in number, but on land and in space, the humans fought like warrior gods, always where the fighting was thickest, never tiring, never wavering. They inspired those around them to fight harder, to never give in, even and even sometimes to sacrifice in the name of the great good. The war went on for decades, and at times seemed lost, but the bravery, preparation, logistics and tactics of the humans snatched victory from the jaws of defeat time and time again. The cost was dear. Trillions of lives lost to the pursuers. But in the end, the galaxy was victorious. It had been a long, bloody and torturous war, such as had never been seen. Cities had been leveled, planets thrown out of orbit, and soldiers returning to their homes found them empty or destroyed. Not knowing how to rebuild, they turned to the now-beloved humans for help. But they were gone. No fanfare. No celebration. The surviving humans just sailed off into deep space in their worldships, towards the closest galaxy, leaving behind the fruits of their labor of a hundred cycles, technology and resources enough to render scarcity impossible for the rest of time. Shortly after they left, a message arrived from the directions the humans had traveled in. It read, We are sorry. There are others we must help for the great good. Now you are truly free, even from us. End of story. Human board games or tabletop games, an intelligence assessment, written by Adjutant Stormy. Tensoncron, after miraculously surviving his previously dour report to command, had been tasked to redouble his efforts on his intelligence efforts against humans. A classical venue of board games was rife with what could only be described as several millennia of combat simulations. Children and adults partake in these matches of tactical skill, and in some specific games are granted ranks that appear to be noble titles, master, grandmaster, and the like. And confusingly, these ranks are all held by civilians. As you all know, civilian humans can be drafted to serve, but it seems neither their competence in war games nor whatever title they may achieve grants them any advanced rank, just military geniuses that can hold a gun. From the simplest to most complex, I present a sampling of some of these war games. Let us begin with Human Checkers. It is a game of two sides of equal strength of identical pieces. Each piece can be moved a space on the board unless an opponent is in front, then it advances over it. And the defending piece is destroyed. This is an excellent simulation in lightning strikes. You have eliminated one opponent, yes but are now in dubiously secure salient awaiting your opponent to do the same to you. Still worse, should a piece reach your enemy's backline, you are to king that piece, increasing its power. Similar to the goal of a lightning strike of the enemy command, that unit is now far more potent at mopping up the front lines who have no orders and no morale. Once you mop up all of your opponent's pieces, you have won. This is a small-scale simulation that even humans in their pubating years can master. Next, I will discuss chess. Several thousand local cycles ago, it predates humanity's invention of firearms. More sophisticated than checkers, it recognizes the desperate abilities of distinct units. Infantry, sappers, aerial scouts, ground scouts, armor, artillery, and spec ops all have different roles and capabilities. 
One must understand them all to win the battle. But chess, chess teaches one when to intentionally sacrifice them. Each player has the same loadout. Each player has a king that they are not legally allowed by the rules to intentionally put in harm's way. This may as well be Division HQ. Through the distinct movements of each unit, the goal is to pin down the HQ to incite a surrender. The HQ doesn't even need to be taken. It must simply be under threat with no option of retreat. Checkmate, it's called. When the king is under threat and cannot escape, the king is not killed, nor is the rest of his remaining places unlike checkers. The match is forfeit. However, you may sacrifice any unit from your infantry, pawns, to your spec ops, queen, in defense of your HQ king, and in some rules be required to if you have any chance of victory. Indeed, in chess, if you view your position as untenable, you may resign at any point. A more honorable simulation than the melee that is checkers. I have interviewed younglings as young as seven local cycles old, who are being vigorously educated in this game. As an aside, we'll diverge to games that humans actually do call war games outright. These are fairly open boards, with terrain, cover, and rules on ranges of weapons, defensive abilities of armor, morale requirements, like the battle in miniature detail. One example from their late second millennium is Warhammer 40k. Warhammer 40k, considering we are not even close to the 40th millennium by human reckoning, we shall call a fantasy game, but that in humans is not a pejorative. Two players recruit, read, purchase all of the pieces for their fictional army, then they spend hundreds of hours painting them in their army's library, dutifully painting even facial expressions on even the lowliest grunt. After spending so much time and credits on a single army, they more than likely will build another. Why? Is it addiction, devotion to the craft? No. Warhammer players are lunatics. There is so many units with so many rules, with so many modifications, you can choose each man's sidearm from Zephyr's sake. It is a game about zone control. Each player has the same budget for their army. So, you're like chess and checkers, but both players are supposed to be on even footing. You cannot run an army for 50 tanks against an army of 50 infantry. That's against the rules. You win by holding the most strategic points, not even until the end of the game, but by scoring by holding it, even if you get blasted off by a multi-multi gun or an Earthshaker cannons, you get the idea. But that's nothing in the complexity of humans' final war game. Go. It sounds simple. Whoever controls the most territory at the end wins. Players alternate placing pieces. Very few rules. If your piece gets surrounded with nowhere to go, they die. You cannot make the same play repeatedly to undo a loss. That's it. That is the most terrifyingly accurate simulations the humans regularly play for recreation. A game AI struggles to beat them in, and is a perfect analogy to planetary invasion. Edit. Did I mention humans have been playing Go for nearly 7,000 years? Again, I recommend caution to command, because these are fun to humans. End of story. Story number two. The Reapers fear only two things. Written by DWL52-2. Briefing from Tactic Veteran Energy Collector. Reclaimers, spur guides, soul collectors, we have as many names as there are spices in the universe. I personally prefer the bringers of light. The trench talk call us that. Odd little species. Anyways, 
I'm here to inform all of you of a certain species that call us Reapers, a species called humans. I'll use their name for us during this briefing, as it will be easier to remember that way. We, as Reapers, are tasked with gathering the energies of the dead and returning it to the Great Light. And with most of the species that inhabit this universe, our jobs are fairly easy. This, however, is not the case when it comes to humans. Luckily, most of you were not around a few years ago, and as such have never had the displeasure of having met one. Those of you who have, you know what I'm talking about. So, for those of you who do not know, a human is a bipedal creature that stands between one and three units tall and can weigh anywhere between 20 and 90 blocks in weight. They have two arms that end in hands and five fingers on each hand, and a head that contains a brain, eyes, nose, mouth, and ears that sits on top of the body. They are covered in a thin layer of skin with meat and muscle underneath, all built on an internal skeleton. On the skin, they have thin layer of hair that covers their bodies with patches that grow thicker than the rest. While they are not as big or have as many graspers as other species out there, I must warn you, they are by far the worst to deal with. I was so naive the day the Great Light called an assembly of us to the humans' territory, a small solar system in the far edge of the spiral galaxy. An assembly of reapers like this usually only meant one thing, war. I've seen it before and knew, or thought I knew, what to expect. One of my fellow Reapers had dealt with humans before, and he knew the ways of war when it came to humans. He tried to warn me about the dangers we were about to get into, but I didn't listen. The energy of the dead cannot interact with us more than try to communicate. We are still able to touch them and move them where we want. This is not the case when it comes to humans. It turns out that this assembly of reapers were being gathered because of a bug-like species invading the solar system of the humans. All of us reapers would have our hands full with this one, as there seemed to be billions if not trillions of souls on each side of the impending conflict. It wasn't long after we arrived in force to witness the battle that the first barrage of weapons fire lit up the black of space and the skies over the planets. Now. The first thing to remember when you're going to be harvest the energies of the dead, humans are too angry to stay dead. As long as their body still has a will and has a beating heart, it's impossible to harvest their energies. I learned this the hard way. I witnessed a human get hit in the chest with a piercing weapon that tore through his body. I watched him crumble to the ground in a pool of his own blood. When I went to pull these energies out, it fought me. I struggled to grip on it, and after a few minutes of fighting with it, the energies formed into the shape of a human that I was wrestling it from. It hit me. The energies cannot interact with us, but this human-shaped energy specking hit me. It then let out a roar that absolutely terrified me, before it leapt back into the body I had wrestled it from. The body then shook and started to crawl away from me. Anger. The energies were able to hit me because of its anger. Calling it just anger seems too little for that emotion, though. Rage, loathing, the purest form of hatred may be closer to the right description. Human rage, such a powerful tool. As the battle continued, we Reapers eventually had to start grouping up on the humans dead, sometimes as many as four of us per human that died, all trying to wrestle the energies away from the dead body. 
It was during one of these struggles that we learned a new word, one that described a particularly hard group of humans to kill, Marines. There were eight of us trying to get the energies from one human away from its body. The rage it howled pulled us back towards its body. That's when it screamed words we all understood. I do not have permission to die, and I will not disobey orders. This raises a question that, to this day, I do not have an answer to. Who gives them permission to die? Because it's definitely not us. On the third day of the conflict, I found the second thing we Reapers need to remember when dealing with the humans. They have medics. Now regular doctors are one thing. Human medics are a beast all of their own. We had just managed to pull the energies out of one soldier who had lost a couple limbs and was bleeding all over the place from various other wounds. His energy was unable to continue fighting. One of our own had just started to bring the energies to the collection zone when a medic showed up. This medic started beating his fists into the chest of the dead man very violently. I almost pitied the dead one as his body was being ruthlessly attacked. I thought maybe this human was trying to help the dead man pass to the other side quicker. I was wrong. The dead man started breathing again. I wasn't shocked because the soldier came back. That has happened several times already with these seemingly immortal juggernauts. What shocked me was that when this medic did it, the reaper dragging the energies away was also dragged back and was destroyed. The energies of that reaper was combined with the energies of the soldier. We were supposed to be these immortal collectors for the great light, and this mortal creature just killed one of us by saving his own kind. The soldier lived, by the way. I'm not sure how, but I think it was due to the energy he stole from us. Now to get to the point of this briefing, you were all called here because there is another species out there that thinks they can fight the humans and win. Your goal is to collect their energy and return it to the great light. And do remember this one thing while you're doing your duties. Ensure that a human medic has already seen to any human deaths and has moved on before you try to collect them. If you do not heed this warning, it may be you whose energy is being collected. End briefing. End of story. I'd quickly like to thank the T5 peeps, but Maury, Terran on Air, Cold War, Boomer Waffen, Severin Cerberus, Red Panda 121, Leslie 517, Bushmaster 177, Casper Arnholtz, Cam Maxwell, Lightjock, Dragzoon WRE, Lord Azrakal, and Arcadian. Thank you.